0: Cliffcentral.com I'm Jonathan. Aren't you gonna say welcome to the Renegade Reports
1: anymore? <laughs> no, they know what it is, they pressed it on their phone. Well they know who I am, so I'm not gonna
0: introduce myself. Or say you're present. Yeah, Shelly Garland is present. <laughs> The faux Shelly Garland. That's the only one that I know of. But anyway, what are you well? Um, I'm as good as you. Yeah, good, considering I saw you a few minutes ago. Uh, so we had quite a bit of interest um, from, from listeners saying they want to know more about economics, broadly speaking.
1: Yeah, and um, look, I, I admit I've learned quite a lot uh, as we've gone through this podcast, read quite a bit, but... Economics is a
0: is is a fairly complex area. Is it an art? Is it a science? Is it pseudoscience? We don't know.
2: No one no, knows you I
0: don't. <laughs> so we thought we should bring an economist along to to help us uh sort this uh, dilemma out. And in the studio with us today is uh, Chris Becker, uh, an economist. We're currently working at Investec Bank. And uh, Chris and I go way back. We try to start a little uh libertarian movement a few years ago work got in the way, damn capitalism. Uh, but nevertheless, now we're back. Welcome, Chris. <laughs> Thanks,
2: Ramon. Good good to be here. No, the pleasure all ours. Yeah, so, and John, of course.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> should, should, we, should we begin? Ramon says, I can't ask too broad a question, like what is economics? But um, do you want to give us a bit of a sense of sort of modern approaches to economics? There's uh, Austrian school and uh, is it... Keynesian Keynesian, sorry, I always say that wrong And Chicago Um, School And Chicago School Do you want to give us sort of an idea of the modern approach to economics Or if you want to say, no, well, that's not where it begins I'm happy to go there as well
2: Sure, look, I think um, very simply I would say there's sort of three um, big branches of, of approaching economics and applying it the one, the one approach would be um, a sort of uh, Keynesian approach, which would be uh, looking at economies through aggregated data. So you look at the behavior of a whole bunch of individuals and businesses. You sum all of that data together. You look at aggregated economic statistics at a country level um, from where you drill down into sectors um, and into business statistics and, and data. Um, it becomes quite an econometric approach. Um, and that I would say is sort of the second uh, big method that economists that I see practicing today would tend to follow mm. is is that they um, become very econometric, very very stuck in models and databases and these sorts of things to try and understand what 's going on in the economy and then there 's a third approach um, which which would fall under the Austrian School of economics uh, which which looks at individual action. Um, human action, so the behavior of humans and the incentive structures that exist that drives human action within an economy, so it really starts from an individual level, tries to understand the um, the economy and the framework that they 're operating within the rules and the regulations and interest rates and prices in the economy that 's going to drive entrepreneurial action and behavior. And so that's sort of an approach that I tend to follow, that I like to follow, to try and understand and make sense of the economy and business cycles and interest rates and the effects that that has on the economy. Um, and, and then from there, you can start to aggregate data. Um, so I, I feel that it's like a, it's a branching of microeconomics, macroeconomics, um, as well as behavioral economics. It's all in the Austrian mm-hmm. school. So currently today, the sort of um, modern branches of economics, the monetarists and the Keynesians and all these guys, on us saying, "Well, we need to look at behavioral economics and add that to our mm. toolkit," but the reality is, uh, Eugene Bombavik and Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard—all these Austrian school economists—were doing that, and they've been doing it for the last hundred years.
1: And were quite successful in doing so.
2: Been very su- su- successful in doing so.
0: So, I mean, based on on the two definitions you gave us, it, it appears that Keynesian economics is great for, like, a centralized state to. So-called run the economy. So, if you look at uh, the interest rate must be at five percent, so that we curb inflation, and the GDP is this and that. It's, it's all stats and data, and it's useful for the state to devise some sort of policy.
2: So, as soon as you talk about state policy, is that inherently Keynesian? Well, I think that approach lends itself to to policymakers. You know, policymakers are in the business of setting policies and trying to manage economies. Um, then don't care so much about individual liberty and, and rights and, and the incentives of, of people and how they act and behave. Um, so, I mean, if, if you're in government, the policy that's going to allow you to do more and get out of bed every day and set interest rates and decide how much money to spend, if you're sitting in the Ministry of Finance, how much money to allocate to whichever ministries, you need to be constantly coming up with ways to, to interfere. And so that's, that's very much the sort of more interventionist approach to economics, which is squarely where the Keynesian school sits. So, for example, if we can talk about um, the global financial crisis of 2008, hmm. this would be a good way to sort of understand the differences in, in the way of thinking. But we know what happened, Chris. The free market failed. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Don't it, you know that? Capitalism <laughs> failed.
0: And it failed hard. And now we need social democracy to fix it.
2: Yeah, So, and more government spending and lower interest rates, right?
0: Right,
2: (laughs) right. Um, Ignoring that interest rates were ultra low in the 2000s, Mm. um, the government in America, for example, were putting these incentive structures in place, encouraging people to all own homes and to borrow more to do it. Um, Money was cheap and easy. And so government was enabling this big credit boom and housing bubble to form, which busted. Okay, so – that From the Austrian approach, that would, that would be the issue. Individuals were incentivized and led down this path of t- borrowing too much money and spending too much of it on houses, which inflated a housing bubble. Whereas the Keynesians, for example, saw this sudden contraction in demand where households and consumers saw the, the, the value of their homes going down, which led to the psychological impact of having to tighten their belts, borrow less, spend less. So demand went down in the economy. They see the solution not as as actually letting the deleveraging and house price correction clear the economy of the excesses that it had just gone through. Um, but we need to cut interest rates more. Actually, we need to print a whole lot of money now um, and also start um, government spending. And, and bail, bail everyone out, out as well. And bail everybody yeah,
0: so, out. So, so to get out of the hole, yeah. you need people to spend much more mm. than what they're already doing, which is counterproductive mm. because then debt racks up. And then how do you? Pay back that debt Like in a Keynesian model How do they expect to get out of that hole if, if your
2: solution is to spend Whenever times are tough I mean how do they repay debt At the end of the day yeah, well, In a perfect world What they would want is that They can sort of prop things up For long enough So that the entrepreneurial spirit comes back The animal spirits pick up again So that businesses can start earning profits Be profitable in order to generate the taxes To settle the debt down, down the road
0: Okay. So when there is like a boom, so to speak, in the economy, that's mm. when the government is supposed mm. to pay back the debt yeah. they used when there was a bust. Did they ever hit the boom though?
1: Because the, it sounds like it's a self-defeating philosophy in that, um, you'll never get to the boom because you keep creating a bubble in some way or other. Um, and so, um, you, whatever success you, you get to will never exceed the amount you have to pay back. That, that seems to be a
2: fundamental flaw in the, in the, in the principle yeah so what, what tends to happen is they'll create booms and busts in different sectors of the economy as you go along, <laughs> okay, okay, so yes. if you look at the '90s, for example, you had the tech bubble, yeah, brought on by the same stuff, and in Greenspan, who was the the, the, the governor HH. of the Federal Reserve yeah. back in the '90s, was also keeping interest rates too low for the economy at that point in time, so it was around seven or eight or ten percent at that point in time compared to zero today. Um, But it led to excessive investment and spending and capital accumulation in the tech sector Bubble busted in 2000, 2001 Obviously there was an excess supply of tech companies and capital And and people in the labor force and all these things That had to be liquidated um, in the next sort of decade And then in the 2000s, Paul Krugman actually said in 2001 He wrote about needing to create a housing bubble to To drive the economy into another growth upswing, which they obviously managed to achieve through another series of interest rate cuts and Fannie and Freddie and all these policies that boosted the housing market.
1: Is is Paul Krugman in the same? Is he on that side of the boat?
2: Yeah, very much so. He's full on Keynesian. This
1: is is why I don't ever agree
2: with him. Yeah. (laughs) So, so created a housing bubble. The tech bubble was still bursting. Um, in the process, also as the housing bubble got going, we started to see a big commodities bubble also being inflated. Um, and obviously China was coming on stream. Um, so after 2008-9, when you had these these the major central banks in the developed countries sort of doubling down on policy and printing trillions of dollars in, in new currency and cash, um, at, at, at the same time, the Chinese were also embarking on a massive stimulus program in 2009, 10, 11, 12, which kind of put – um, just further inflated an unsustainable commodity bubble and, and, and boom cycle, and so that's kind of been busting since 2012, 2013. So you know, through these policies, you just create these systemic, sectoral boom bust business cycles, uh, which is which is devastating over the long term. You, it leads to a lot of capital um, malinvestment, is what the Austrians would call it. Mm. You know, so you, you have excess investments and overcapacity and it's, it's, it's a less efficient way of allocating resources in the economy. I mean,
0: ironically, people who are against the free market always say that the free market has these booms and busts and you need to somehow control them. But it's like these people are creating them like on purpose because I assume the same, the same methodology applies in each one. I think the next, uh, from what I've heard, the next bubble is the student loan or what's it called? Uh, what's it called when you, yeah, student loan bubble? Like everyone, yeah. everyone goes to university and it's like, it's up to like $1.2 trillion now, the amount of debt owed on those loans. But it's the same methodology throughout. So ironically, anti-capitalists who say that the free market has these booms and busts and they, these booms and busts must actually be controlled through a central regulatory framework. Uh, that framework is creating
2: them the booms and busts on purpose. Yeah, sure, it does. Um, and and I, and I guess that I think the biggest problem with it is that by manipulating the interest rates and having so much control over taxation and government spending, which has become so big in these most countries throughout the world today, you create a systemic problem for the economy. So you know, historically, before you had central banks, you know, America actually I had two central banks in the 1800s. They both basically hyperinflated their currencies. That's where the term greenbacks comes from. They destroyed that currency. They printed too much of it. And in the Civil War, it basically disappeared. But even when um, economies were still on gold standards where the central bank couldn't interfere with uh, with monetary policy and interest rates and so forth, and governments were really small, I mean, in the 1800s, the American government only generated tax revenue from international trade and from property taxes. So the government was really small, but you still had you still had boom bust, you had bubbles in certain sectors and and bust. But what tends to happen when the government takes control of money supply and interest rates and government spending, it starts to create um, a misallocation of resources on a na- on a sort of national wide basis or scale, um, and the costs get transferred onto the taxpayer instead of the entrepreneurs who make the mistakes. If yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Too big to fail. That sort of that sort of mindset.
1: Yeah. is is there anyone not running this model in terms of states? I'm I'm thinking, you know, and and I, not necessarily ones that are defunct. You know, Somalia would be one example. But is there any sort of functional country in the world that's not running this type of model that um, would be listening to people more like you? Uh,
2: no, I think. Um it's it's all about degree, and I think there are some countries who are less interventionist, less some governments, other other governments who are more interventionist. Obviously, so you have a spectrum of this, but pretty much everybody uses this model today. Everybody has a central bank, It has a legal tender, it issues it. The central bank has the ability to set interest rates, not so much the market process, um, and then governments tend to uh, you know have big budgets and so on. I guess some of the freer countries, like Hong Kong, for example. Mm that have grown incredibly prosperous in 60 years. You know, Back in the 1950s, Hong Kong was poorer than South Africa, also a colonial state. Um, they had a Helen. They, they had a finance minister in the 1950s, a guy by the name of John Kalperthwaite, and um, he actually took this uh, laissez-faire approach and he said we're not going to collect uh, data on the economy because it would give the interventionists and government ammunition to interfere and basically slow down progress that the entrepreneur would bring about. Um, there was sort of a famous story of of lobbyists in Hong Kong who wanted to have a, of a have a bridge built over um, some 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 water mass, and he said, "No, look, if it's if it's going to be profitable for entrepreneurs to do it, at some point they'll do it. Government doesn't have to do it." So that was the that was the approach that Hong Kong followed, obviously with tremendous success by 1997. It had overtaken Britain in terms of prosperity, if you measure it by GDP per capita. Right. And today it's about 40 to 50% wealthier than the UK. Mm. And so I think it continues with that approach today, still, uh, including Singapore.
0: So, what, what are the, the, the ramifications of, of the government having such a stranglehold on interest rates and legal tender? Because, I mean, it's not, it's not legal for me to give you a dollar. And you give me the equivalent in rand. Like I can't, I can't trade in dollars in South Africa. I can't go to pick and pay and use a yen or a dollar or a pound to buy milk. I need to use South African rands to do it. So that's not a free market system because the the tender is set by the state and enforced. So, but all these, this control of the economy. What what are the dangers other than the booms and bust cycles? What are the dangers for a uh, citizens of a country, when the state has so much power uh, to control interest rates and legal tender.
2: Oh man, that's um, that's a tricky one. Is um, it a bit too broad? It's very broad. Um, what are the dangers?
1: Well, okay. So let me phrase it a different way. Right? You said we had the gold standard mm. before the centralised banks took over. So maybe you can compare. Um, how the market worked with the gold standard, because um, I've got a sort of an idea of how that worked, but it, mm. uh, you can give me a formal sort of definition, um, and then you know what the central banks, um, the, them stepping in mm. and, and changing that whole system did uh, Would that.
2: I think I think uh, I think the answer is it's it's actually quite simple. I think I may have touched on it earlier, but the the issue is that instead of leaving economic activity, activity up to individuals and individual firms and businesses, um, you you sort of handing over a lot of control to committees and government bureaucrats to decide how an economy should be run and what interest rates should be and what the level of taxation should be and uh, where resources should be allocated and so on and so forth. And the problem with that becomes that you, you tend to create these systemic crises and system, systemic risks to an economy, whereas um, – let's, let's take an example. So uh, in Africa in the last 15 years, we've mm-hmm. had this commodities boom, um, and uh, there's this huge infrastructure deficit across Africa. So uh, sub-Saharan African governments have taken it upon themselves to go and borrow a whole bunch of money from foreigners – Mostly because locals don't save enough uh, in significant amounts in order to finance this infrastructure shortfall, hence the reliance on foreign capital and an investment to fund it. So the governments have borrowed a whole bunch of money um, to spend on on this infrastructure. But it's going to take decades for this infrastructure to become truly productive, for entrepreneurs to set up businesses to capitalize and become profitable off the back of this infrastructure. So what happens in the interim? If if a government – so some governments in Africa are already beginning to go bankrupt. Mozambique is pretty much bankrupt. It's already defaulted on its debts. It was the sort of – golden child of africa a couple of years ago the imf had a, had a had a conference in maputo called you know the africa rising conference and it was all about how, how mozambique would just keep growing and all the stuff kind of oblivious to the fact that mozambican taxpayers were on the hook for a whole bunch of government debt that it could never afford to repay um so that's the one thing so you know and, and this may play out in several more african countries in the next few years if um Commodity prices don't recover to a significant extent. I mean, they need to, to go up quite a bit to sort of alleviate some of these risks. Take the American experience of infrastructure development. In the 1800s, it had the railroad boom from about 1830 to 1870 or 1880. It was basically funded not so much by government, but private capital, primarily from Europe. Um, and so most of these, these railway lines were privately incorporated businesses that were run for, for profit – so it was being built along the routes that would generate profits, uh, quicker turnaround yeah. and income. That made the most, most sense. Um, and so they were profitable for a while, but by 1930, I think it was, or 1935, something like 95% of these railroad businesses had gone out of business. They'd gone bankrupt. But the costs didn't fall on the taxpayer through massive currency weakness and much higher tax rates and all these sorts of things. And the costs for, fell on those investors who had, who had funded these projects. Mm.
1: So they went out of business.
2: Yeah, they went out of business. So the costs, it wasn't a systemic risk. And so that's what we're seeing in Africa today. These currencies are all under major pressure, lumping the cost and the burden of this on on the taxpayer and on the citizen who didn't necessarily approve all the spending and who didn't want this necessarily in his life. So, Ramon, to answer your question, I think these are some of the issues that that it creates.
1: Well, I don't think we'd go there that quickly, but let's then talk about the government promising you free stuff because – there's no such thing as, as free stuff because they have to get it from
0: somewhere. They've got to pay for it. But, but it's often not just free stuff. It's just the question of we need to build roads and upgrade buildings and waterworks and like just for the sure. necessary function of the state. It's not just about bribing. Sometimes it's just about the function of the state to operate
1: normally. Yeah. But it's just like, you know, you talk about infrastructure projects. Uh, the United States has done this several times. Uh, they did it in the sort of 30s. Um, they 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 've um, uh, they 're doing it again now, Obama tried to do it. Trump wants to do an even bigger one. Um, Obama wanted to do eight hundred billion. I think Trump wants to do one trillion expenditure um, that 's one trillion of the taxpayers' money um, in south africa we don 't um target giant infrastructure projects in that sense we don 't say we 're going to spend trillion rand, but we do. Have government saying they want to invest in certain projects. I mean, the nuclear deal would be one example, which people have, have cottoned onto, but I'm sure there's, 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 tons of others. I assume you don't trust the government, um, to do these things on our behalf and then, um, ask us to pay later.
2: Yeah. Look, I think it would just be better done left to, to individuals, free individuals. Um, and, and I think it would be more efficiently done if it was less left to the market process and not to government.
0: It's like the World Cup. Just host a referendum. Do you want the World Cup? Yes, no. Yes. If you say yes and you win, you pay for it. Mm. All the people who voted yes, all the ones who voted no, don't pay. All right. I, think, I think that will be simple, right? Much better way to do something.
1: But then you can't benefit as well if you if you voted no. Why would I want to go? Benefit. Why
0: would I want to go see? Two like airy fairy footballers crying when they smack each other in the face with a ball. I mean, come on. Okay,
1: separate topic. But you you wrote a you wrote an article um, I think it was on Mises, which um, um, Mises, Jonathan. Mises. Uh, apologies, <laughs> you're the you're the European. Um, well, that's his name. <laughs> uh, yes, von Mises. Sorry, apologies. Um, but you wrote an article there, which you said you're quite um, positive about the fact that the. I think you were referring to our government, but government is quite um, disorganized and and incompetent. And so that actually allows the market to get on with it. Do you you want to expand on that a bit?
2: Yeah, sure. So, yeah, that was a a few years ago. It was an interview I did with um, the Daily Bell. Uh, Okay. It's still available online if people are interested in it. We'll link to it. Um, Yeah, but it's it's an interesting concept. I mean – uh, there's this element of of dangerous efficiency that comes in with the go- when a government is is big, uh, and it takes over a whole lot of responsibility from from individuals and businesses in the private sector, um, and it sort of lulls people into a sense of complacency. Take mm. Greece for example. Greece, the government did things re- quite efficiently, but it was borrowing a whole bunch of money in order to do it. And so, which speaks to the inefficiency of the process. Um, but they were executing what they were delivering quite efficiently. And then suddenly they had a big debt crisis and they couldn't deliver on all the public services and, and utilities that they had been implementing for the public at large for quite some time. And it caused a pretty severe economic crisis. Um, in, in a country like South Africa, what we've seen in the last while is that policy's been Uh, Sort of uh, incoherently Implemented and quite disjointed So a lot of the ministries aren't Very coordinated uh, in terms of How they 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 implement policies And it's left a lot of loopholes For the private sector to take over A lot of services that the government Were wanting to Provide individuals Um, And so you have this massive parallel Private sector that's developed in South Africa For Mm. some time so if we have some kind of Major crisis and I'm not saying we're going to have it Necessarily um, there's this parallel private sector of private security, um, healthcare, schooling, um, and a whole bunch of other things that are kind of taken care of. And so you're not going to be relying on the stack. You are going to get hurt through much weaker currency and so, all these sorts of things. Um, but, but the chaos is less severe.
1: What, what, we, what you're saying is we are perfectly set up to become an anarchy. Because we could just dispense with the government and then we've got all those services ready.
0: Danefern is an an anarchic uh, (laughs) golf estate. It's it's hell on earth. I don't think you should use it as your model. No, no, no. But they've got their own roads, they've got their own internal security uh, force, they've got their own internal rules. You can't just go in there because you feel like it. You have to, like, fill in the form and show your ID and shit like that. I mean, those. If you live in Danefern, as an example, you're not going to feel too much if. Okay, maybe if the waterworks don't work, but, but objectively speaking, you're not going to worry too much if, uh, the power plant in KZN doesn't work because you've got an internal, mm, it's all provided, power generating it's, system. So is,
1: is so you, I mean, that's a, that's obviously a good thing because you'd prefer the private sector to, to deal with things. Um, but isn't it better if, because what we've got is, Yes, we've got incompetence from government that causes, for example, our security industry to be huge because our police service is um, just basically defunct in many respects. Um, And that's great, except we still pay the police service a large amount of money. So – it's not an ideal situation. The best the best situation would be for the government to go, okay, cool, you've, you've got the security services doing that. That means we don't need as much of your tax money. Um, so our biggest issue would still be the incompetence combined with the corruption. Is that, is that a fair, f- fair no, view? Yeah,
2: sure. It just raises the cost of living here. Um, but the fact that we've had this parallel private sector developing, providing these services that otherwise probably wouldn't have been there or as good, mm. clearly. That's why the private sector has <laughs> developed to do it. Um, that would have just meant that our lifestyles would have been lower, you know? would have been even more dangerous to live in certain areas of Joburg. Mm. Um, we would have, I think, significantly worse, worse health care. Um, you know and a whole bunch of other things, so that that could have potentially driven uh, a more significant outflow of, of middle class South Africans from the country so it hasn 't happened up until now, so mm. you still have capital accumulation and investment and all these things happening because this parallel private sector was was allowed to develop so what was interesting is if you look at the sort of um, the battle of ideas and the political spectrum in South Africa. Um, it seems to me that like in the last year or so there 's been a sort of a, a, a reunification around the principles of the National democratic revolution, at least in the ruling mm. party um, and the National democratic revolution, if you go and read the texts is is basically about um, redistributing the means of production from mm-hmm. from private hands into public hands and it 's about bringing around socialism and ultimately communism in south africa and it 's very clear in the texts when you go and read these things. And that was what the was sort of primary uh, criticism of the current president from the ANC veterans and the South African Communist Party in Kasatu was all around the threat to the national democratic revolution and executing on this. Um and so What concerned me a lot around the political dynamic is that there would be an exclusion of the private sector or suffocation of the private sector if the NDR would become the rallying cry to keep the political, at least the tripartite alliance together. Mm. But what was interesting in this morning's business day, there was a story about the NHI um, and the current minister of health, Aaron Mozzoledi. That's his name.
1: Spot on. He's right. Yep. Um, it's better than uh, uh, my uh, my 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 name rec- recognition these days. <laughs>
2: um, is um, I cover a few African countries. That's why I just had to check. And uh, there's a lot a lot of names to remember. But um, he he's still wanting the private sector to form part of the NHI. Um, I was I was quite concerned that if there wouldn't be private sector involvement, and there seems to be another faction because in the article, Kosatu was pushing for no private sector involvement at all. And if that's the route that this takes, I would be quite concerned around the ability of of, of healthcare in South Africa to support a middle class lifestyle. Mm. So that becomes a significant risk.
1: Yeah, and we discussed it actually on the previous podcast. Uh, yeah, with regards mm, to the NHI right. and healthcare. But yeah, I, it's. Uh, I, I think he's being a little bit uh, disingenuous um, in terms of the private sector being involved. Yeah, they'll, they'll own the buildings. They'll get told how much to charge. It's still socialism. Mm.
0: Um, but anyway. But a, a, an argument made by by people who, who who think that the state should have certain um, what duties to perform is that you've got this notion of public goods, right? So if you privatize uh, water... Or energy production, like, um, like an ESCOM. We can't trust the private sector to deal with it adequately because they could charge whatever they want with, with little, um, little uh, pushback. So this notion of public goods is important. Uh, that's why the state needs to run these public goods and they need the taxes to run those public goods. Okay. So Africa's not a great example of that because our <laughs> state of enterprise are awful. Of them. but in in a in a functioning democracy i mean does the state have any role to play
2: in the economy for you look and i think in to be pragmatic the the the, the political economy that we find ourselves in today as we mentioned earlier all governments have a central bank that set interest rates control the money supply and you have gov- big, generally big governments who tax a lot and spend a lot of money and they have so they have a lot of influence over the economy. There's a lot of theorists like Hans-Hermann Hopper and Murray Rothbard and these guys who are anarcho-capitalists uh, mm-hmm. who basically put forward very good arguments for why you don't need any state involvement at all. That security can be provided by the market. Clearly, it's being done in South Africa. That insurance um, would be – key to the provision of security uh, and the legal framework for 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 economies and societies um and uh but i think it would be extremely difficult to try and implant that into a sort of the modern modern political economy that we find ourselves in. absolutely but yeah sure i i could i could totally buy that um i mean if you look if you look at ireland Sort of medieval Ireland It functioned along those lines You know Very tribal society They had their own little private courts Private provision of security And all these things And they but were by no means Prosperous like we are today Because they didn't have the technology That we have today yeah. But that's how their society functioned All right In fact An interesting point on this is that the the British could never colonize Ireland because they didn 't have a, a chief that ruled over all of Ireland well, there you had no all central, these tribes, yeah. there was no central government that, yeah. that the Brits could just come in and take over and control and there was so no, they could never colonize Ireland and
0: there was no unified system of taxation to take over either exactly that 's why it's impossible to take exactly. over anarchy
2: no current, no single
0: currency and all these things yeah, yeah. so but so but back to the notion of public goods that whether you want to or not, we live in a in a democratic state. There are obligations on the state to to give us what is required through the constitution, or whatever whatever the other document. So, I mean, it's important that the state uses those resources for the betterment of everyone. Um, I mean, I'm not convinced. I mean, are
2: you- but c- but come on! I mean, look, but just look at it. Look look at the real world. I mean, who does it best? You know, who's providing uh, the best medical services, who's providing the best security services, and all these things that are much lower cost. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think there's, like, proof to re- sort of refute so, that, that the state needs to be providing all so these l- – l- 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 Let me be I'm devil's trying to be the devil's advocate, let me be but it's the so devil's hard.
1: Advocate. All right. So, so the devil's advocate would say, oh, Chris, you know, we've um, – we are – security services being provided there are there's healthcare being provided that's only to a small sector of the population essentially the majority and certainly on healthcare for example the majority of the population is still um uh, forced to use public healthcare which uh, waxes and wanes in its quality Mm um and you know the the they're also the Probably a fair portion of the population has to rely on whatever the state can provide in terms of security. Mm. They don't have insurance and they don't have um, actual physical security in terms of uh, security guards and all that kind of stuff. So, um, of course, we need the state because look at all the people who have, who are have nots, mm. um, and you can't just be a have. And say that that's okay. So, um, and so then economics, the economics we follow, must um, sort out the have-nots.
2: Sure. I mean, I've 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 heard this argument also with regards to education. You know, Mm. um, you know, uh, I think I think I think the the quality of private school, the likes of Kiro that are providing different tiers of service, Mm. you know, sort of entry level, but it's perhaps still out of reach for the lowest income South Africans. Um, But I think the point here is it's still very difficult to start up a school, Um, and there's a lot of regulations around this. Um, Anne Bernstein from the CDE actually did some excellent research on on schools in in old dilapidated warehouses in in old business districts in South Africa and in the townships where um, they're sort of operating outside of the regulatory and legal frameworks and just starting schools for the community. Um, And it's still a private school, but it's much cheaper. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's being done much more effectively. The teachers are there. There's, there's school books and textbooks and all this but kind of stuff. It's illegal. It's happening, but it's technically illegal. Yeah. Um, but here's, here's the other thing. You look at something like, like technology and cell phones, you know, back in the late nineties, it was expensive, you know, not anyone could own a cell phone. Mm-hmm. If the government had come in around the world basically and just started regulating these things and preventing massive amounts of capital to flow into the tech space in order to bring down the cost of manufacturing improve the level of of, of uh, technology and the quality of it inside um and, and to start mass producing these things for the global market i mean you wouldn't have security guards um, i went out to a restaurant uh you know uh, for a drink last night and um you know, security guards just outside the restaurant all on their cell phones. Where would you have ever seen that in the 90s? You know, but that's because the market process was allowed to be unleashed in order to lower the costs of these goods, to reach a broad mass market. Um, and that cycle repeats itself with various goods and products and services throughout the economy if it's allowed to happen. I think the challenge in South Africa today, for example, with education, is we have this confluence of factors where you have the Internet, you've got now um, – Uh, technological hardware to deliver educational materials through like stuff like the Khan Academy, which is free um, and fantastic and fantastic. It's excellent. Um, And, uh, and it's not really allowed to be unleashed and, and, and sort of entrepreneurs to utilize it, to bring it to the mass population in South Africa. So, you know, I think these are some of the hindrances that we face. So the, you know, the minute we can get our heads around, getting out of the way, getting government out of the way so that the market can actually provide these services, I think it would be I mean a t- to tremendous benefit of, of prosperity so, in, so, and wealth in so South
1: Africa. That's a deregulation yeah, argument. But there essentially. A,
0: there's where's a straw man that if it's privatized or if it's Private, it's far more expensive. But education
2: No, means, but I just told you why it wouldn't no, be no, a I'm talking about some the, some schools. The really, critics the yeah. critics. Uh, I mean Yale... is being stuff. a leftist. It's yeah, fine. You can to, throw something trying at
0: to be a leftist <laughs> I'll self advise a leftist for the show. But the problem with the problem is for education specifically, the poorest people in the world have private education. There's a guy called James Tooley. He wrote a book. I can't remember his name, but if you Google him, you'll see his book. Um, it's in uh, Sierra Leone, the slums of Mumbai. The poorest people in the world have private schooling. There are these thousands and tens of thousands of private schools that have popped out everywhere that compete with each other who don't pay good salaries to teachers. We accept that. They don't have the best facilities. We accept that. But they charge $30 a term and th- what they found is that the parents could get free public education if they wanted it, and they'd rather cough up thirty dollars a term to send their kids to the private school. And in terms of the data they have collected, the the amount of however you measure education, the amount of input the student gets at a pro- at these very cheap private schools and the public schools are, is is there's quite a large margin. Between the two in terms of skills and knowledge and things like that. So private education for the poorest people in the world, it already exists. But just no one seems to care or write about it because the state's not involved. And the state keeps on trying to strangle these private schools. But they exist in, in the poorest communities in the
1: world. Mm. No, private healthcare exists in South Africa uh, beyond um, the large hospital groups and the medical aids. Uh, The reality is that uh, many people who live in townships, informal settlements, and and um, uh, various suburbs across the country will go to their private GPs. uh, for the most part, relatively unregulated. Obviously, there's a health professions council um, who, unfortunately, haven't burnt to the ground yet. Um, that's not an incentive to do anything, by the way. Um, but, but I wouldn't be sad about it. Um, but there's these GPs who, who provide a service, uh, are paid in cash, and uh, people skip going to the public hospital uh, out of choice. Because they feel that the service they get there will be better or quicker or more efficient. Yeah, they don't wait. Um, to, they
0: don't wait the whole day. For, yeah, for, for it's although. not
1: eighteen yeah. hours to be seen by a doctor. Um, so these things uh, exist whether you allow them. To exist or not, uh, and beyond beyond that, uh, you know, we've got a large in terms of healthcare. And so there, we've got a large group of the population who don't go to traditional Western doctors; they go to traditional healers and things like that, um, which is an entirely unregulated private industry which seems to do just fine. Um, so I think, you know, I suppose we're all going to agree with each other—a bit of an echo chamber. But the private sector seems to, wherever it is, provide the service that people
2: want. Yeah, another area that's that's um, sort of at the frontier of disrupting government control over over currency and interest rates. I think especially is is cryptocurrency. You know, the likes of Bitcoin and yeah. Ethereum and all these things. Um, let's talk about that because yeah. if you
1: bought, how much was it? If you bought twenty dollars of Bitcoin or thirty dollars of Bitcoin, I don't know, five well, years ago, you've gone worth up a
2: Two thousand dollars odd in the last four or five years. Yeah, so two thousand times actually. Yeah. Gone from about a dollar or fifty cents to two thousand dollars. I think it was two thousand one hundred and fifty. Yeah, yesterday when I left the office today. So even, yeah, yeah. Yeah, So I mean, it's 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 ramping up. If Ethereum, uh, which is another cryptocurrency, which is more of a second generation cryptocurrency where you can have smart contracts built into transactions, um, it's it's at one hundred and seventy-five dollars today. It was at ninety dollars like a few weeks ago, um, and ten dollars at the start of the year. I mean, it's just going. Going. i
1: mean the, the, what's what's driving the growth in that what, what's what what makes bitcoin worth two thousand one hundred and fifty dollars today versus um
2: seventy dollars you know three four years ago i think it's the prospects of 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 massive disruption to the currency markets throughout the world i mean um, and 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 to drive currency markets towards Uh, Away from centralized control towards decentralization of money and competition, competing currency. So Friedrich von Hayek, also a great Austrian economist and and Nobel laureate, wrote about um, competing currencies uh, and how the best currencies would tend to win and the the important function of that in, in the market process where people have the freedom to choose their currency that they want to transact in as well. I think these currencies, these cryptocurrencies, are kind of beginning to introduce that at some level. We were chatting earlier before the show just about the complexity still mm. of understanding these currencies. Yeah, I was saying
1: just if you're a layperson mm. and you know if you're listening to the show and you go, "Sure, that sounds like good growth," and maybe I want to put some money in that. Mm. The truth is, is actually getting into it is. It's not that complicated, but it's not simple. It's certainly Mm -hmm. not as simple as walking into Capitech Bank Mm -hmm. and opening an account.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So, I mean, that's why one of my bigger investment regrets is not buying Bitcoin (laughs) back in 2011. And the reason for that was… Not that I didn't understand it, but just it was a pile of paperwork that I had to do, and I had to get on with work that day. You know, <laughs> So I pushed it aside, and then it got covered in another book and another file and yeah, something else. Five and years I, later, like, you uh, missed yeah, the boat. So four years later, I actually got around to doing it. But what had happened over those four years is that much, uh, much, much better um, interfaces and platforms that are far easier to understand and operate for a layperson um, had, had been designed and developed. So that's kind of where the market's going as well. So. And that would have caused
1: the growth as well. And that's that's contributing
2: to the growth too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's much more accessible. It's much easier to now get into Mm. uh, Bitcoin and all these cryptocurrencies. Um, I think, I think, yeah, it's, it's going to be a disruptor to the currency space. uh, I think potentially for, you know, for decades to come. I think in the next 10 years, uh, currency regimes around the world could look very different. I mean, if we look at for Af- Africa, for example, at the moment, the central Bank of Nigeria has put a lockdown on the supply of dollars after the oil price collapse, the, the supply of dollars basically vanished. A lot of our investor clients and even businesses are stuck in the country earning earning money. They want to convert it into dollars and get it out of the country Cons- but the central bank 's locked down mm. um, now th- the thing is. The cryptocurrency market in, in, in Nigeria was not well developed before the lockdown. Hmm. But if it had have been, there would have been no way for the central bank to to prevent people from getting money out of the country. Um, and so I think capital controls and all of these risks that investors into places like Africa face today could be something that's, that's completely insignificant as a risk in the next 10 years or so. Uh, and like with mobile technology, the adoption rates of these things could go up dramatically the minute you start to see significant amounts of capital pouring into the space. So, for
1: that to happen, you need – I mean for, for there to be value in a Bitcoin, for example, and and the value will increase as far as I can understand, the more you can do with a Bitcoin, right? So if, 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 if you could not trade a Bitcoin, it would be worth nothing. But the more you, pr- services or products or whatever you can buy or the more you can trade it for – then that's where you're creating the value is that sure a fair I, mean, understanding? I, think,
2: I think the thing is now we Bitcoin has been extremely volatile, hmm. mostly to the upside, so the price has risen a whole lot more than it's dropped in the last five years. The same thing goes for most of the other cryptocurrencies so far um but this market is so young you know it's it's, it's, it's five years old, four years old, Bitcoin or whatever it is. And then there's a whole bunch of initial coin offerings happening at the moment. I think there's a total of something like 800 cryptocurrencies in circulation at the moment. Mm. And by no means do I expect all of these things are, are going to succeed. Yeah. Um, and the price It'll is going to be bubble. extremely volatile. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, it may be. I mean, some of these are going to go to naught, you know. Yeah. Um, and I I'm not entirely sure which ones. But the value that something like Bitcoin especially brings is that it's got a very rigid um, – program or or well, regulatory infrastructure where the supply of bitcoin is going to be fixed and i think the number is 21 million units. Yeah. So there was like
1: 2032 or something we yeah, run out of it.
2: Yeah. Exactly. And, and so you won't run out of it but the new supply yeah. is going to slow down to the point where there's basically no new bitcoins exactly. added to into the overall supply. Which is obviously very different to legal tender, you know, currencies, fiat monies in circulation, which can just get created. Yeah, a central bank can just just create it out of thin air. And I think the value that a currency like Bitcoin provides to people is that it becomes a store of value, and it's a very nascent young market. And so the more people take big positions expecting that the utility of Bitcoin is going to come up as the supply is fixed, and it's effectively digital gold. So you can transfer Bitcoin anywhere in the world to someone you've never met before without needing an intermediary. To mm. do it. Mm. And so I think that's the utility in a currency like Bitcoin. But then you start to look at some of the second generation and third generation cryptocurrencies, where, as I mentioned before, something like Ethereum, and I'm by no means a sort of full blown expert on this stuff, mm. um, but the, that technology um, allows for you, when you enter a transaction with somebody else, to actually write a smart contract into that transaction. Um, And it becomes a a binding agreement, for example, um, with with rules around arbitration and all this sort of stuff. If you have a disagreement down the road, and so you know, friends of mine, even here in South Africa, are working actively on rolling this technology out in various parts of the country at the moment. Hmm. Um, And um, so, you know, again. It's not only in the currency space, but also in the legal and judicial system, where if you have um, smart contracts with insurance and processes for arbitration and all this kind of stuff, it it basically leads to um, less need to rely on the state's judicial processes in order to 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 operate commercially. But the the problem
0: is, Chris, evil white people will buy all the bitcoin and pay cents to the workers. No. I thought that was the narrative. <laughs> no. I mean I'm I'm taking
2: the No, look, I think this is this is uh, it's potentially a, it's a massive game changer for for countries throughout Africa, eh? Um I mean the, the the reason I think a big part of the reason why a lot of sub Saharan Africa has not managed to get out of poverty to a significant extent, except for Certain elites in these countries, for the general population, why they remain so poor is because you've had governments that have borrowed too much money and spent too much money and they've, they've, they've been too liberal with the printing press and they've created too much of their own currency units. So, what is that? That's basically just very high inflation. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, if you have very high inflation, if you think of an individual again, let's think of an individual living in Ghana where they've had multiple hyperinflations in the last few decades. Um, what's the incentive for you to save in that currency and to put the money into a bank? Cause you're not going to earn an interest rate that compensates you for, mm-hmm. you're just going to constantly be losing, you're well, going to you be losing Africa, right, purchasing power. Yeah. You know, so you have this, and over time that actually begins to change the culture. You know, that leads sure. to a high time preference society where people would much rather consume the, the, the fruits of their labor today rather than saving it and investing it to become more productive in the future. And um, so, you know, I think, I think the more you get disruption with these sorts of alternative currencies that people can adopt through easier platforms that are quite understandable and makes it far more accessible, hmm. the better the chances for poor, poor Africans to become more prosperous. And so I think, I think it's, it's very exciting. So are you saying that the cryptocurrency will create far more certainty
0: in value of exchange, more so than the legal tender or uh, government policy?
2: I think there's, there's certainly, yeah, the potential for that is there. Yeah, definitely.
0: And certainty is obviously very important.
2: Stability is critical. Oh, stability, yeah, yeah t- stability is critical to a currency system. Let, mm. Let's talk
1: a little bit. You mentioned inflation and, and beating inflation with your interest rates. Um, why do we have to have inflation? So, um, we don't, yeah. Okay. So, so why does, you know, everyone loves to use these examples. When I was a kid, you know, chappies were 20 cents. And of course, my folks will say that, or 10 cents. And my folks will say it was like a half penny or something stupid like that because they were dumb colonialists. Um, so the point is, 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 is why does everything. Inevitably go up. How do you, is there, is that just a natural progression of things? Um, you know, is it, is it just that if we come back in 500 years time, you know, instead of a car costing now, probably an average sort of car, three, four hundred thousand rand, um, it'll cost 30 million rand and everyone will just be like, yeah, 30 million rand. That's Mm. how much an average car costs. Mm. Um, what's, 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 what's driving all of that? The things, things,
2: prices of things don't just always go up. Okay. Um, As a consumer, I'm finding this difficult Okay. So, so let's, 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 let's let's say we got to pull back the lens here. Yeah, sure. Um, you you study economic history and, Mm. uh, look at periods where you had stable currency systems, you know, the gold standard during the 1800s. And you look at what happened in in the UK and the US, for example, during those years, um, Prices were actually stable and they started to fall dramatically in the late 1800s when the industrial revolution was was, uh, unfolding. Prices were going down in those days on the order of 10% per year. So prices Mm, were Across the board. Pretty much across the
1: board. Because, I mean, obviously on certain things, so cell phones is the one example where you – you know, a lot of tech. Mm. We can say, well, there's been a large demand for it and production has obviously increased Mm. supply, demand, all that. And so prices have dropped. Mm. But if it's dropping across the board –
2: then that's a different story, right? Yeah, yeah. And basically, what's happening is the price of money is going up yeah. relative to stuff, yes. goods and services, yes. products that you're buying. So the value of the currency that you hold is going up, you know. Um, and so that's kind of the dynamic. So today, and I've actually I've written an article in this. I looked at the the history of gold in the South African monetary system. Mm. Um, and again, it's 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 available online, and I actually show the data. Um, and the increase of money supply So, you know Money supply has gone up so many times I can't even remember I wrote this article a few years ago um, But it's gone up many, many, many times Since 1961 when the RAND was basically uh, introduced mm. And then the trend's accelerated since the 1970s And what it means basically is um, The more currency gets put into circulation The less value each other unit that exists has so the, the value of the money goes down, and that's what drives prices up. Yeah. Now, it's a miracle that, that business people and entrepreneurs are actually able <laughs> to allow other prices to drop in this environment because central banks have this mandate that they've given themselves in order to target rising prices overall, while the business person is they're trying to constantly bring lower prices to, to more consumers at a better quality to attract more customers. And so that's this, this crazy notion of, of central banks to try and constantly lower the value of the monetary unit. Um, and it creates these huge distortions. So basically, I mean, my, 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 my take is if, if we had stable money, mm. prices would be dropping massively. I mean, you know, perhaps everything would be dropping at the rate that, uh, that uh, mobile phone prices are dropping today. I mean, we don't know. We're never going to know. But – but prices would be much lower, yeah. and poorer South Africans would be able to afford much more than they currently can.
1: So, when they use interest rates to target inflation, is that, you know, obviously that would be somewhat effective, but it's obviously not a complete idea unless you attack your whole monetary policy. Is that fair? fair yeah, look, fair the, the, way that,
2: the way that they actually target inflation is through creating money supply. Okay. Um, so there's a there's a sort of second round consequence of controlling interest rates. You you control interest rates. You lower them when you try want to expand the amount of credit in the system. Mm-hmm. You want people to borrow more money. You make credit cheaper. That has a feed through effect of creating deposits in the banking system, which is money supply. That's how the central bank ma- measures money supply, and that's how it gets created. So you lower interest rates, more money supply. And the value of the monetary unit goes down, and that's what gets you inflation. That's what f- causes prices to rise, and vice versa. Mm. You know, when the business cycle goes into a slowdown phase, interest rates are generally going up, money supply goes down. You're making me hate the central reserve and it's, and bank, a, and, it's a, and it suppresses prices. But it has, a, it, it has a far more fundamentally, far more um, serious impact in that it. An interest rate is probably the most important price in the economy. Um, and um, it it basically is in an in an free in a free market pure free market. The interest rate would tell you the time preference of that society. In other words, a high interest rate would mean that Short. in order to to balance consumption over investment, in order to incentivize people into investment, um, interest rates need to be high, and vice versa. Okay, you start messing with that. Interest rate. So, for example, in a high-time preference society, you artificially lower the interest mm. rate. Um, you're going to get far too much borrowing and spending, and it basically tricks our entrepreneurs throughout the economy into thinking that there's more savings available in the system in order to embark on an, on, on investment processes. And that's what leads to this cluster of errors in the economy. So, you know, all entrepreneurs somehow – Suddenly, hmm. find out that they've all made the same mistake at the same time. And it tends to happen every single business uh, business cycle as you go into a recession. And it kind of blindsides most people. And uh, so that's what Murray Rothbard wrote about the cluster of errors. And he wrote a brilliant article on this. And it was, it was one of those light bulb moments for me about 10 years ago when hmm. I was learning about this stuff. Because I was at the time – um, studying also doing african economics um for a sovereign risk firm and everybody had these very optimistic projections around african growth 2007-8 hmm.
1: it's the african re- renaissance wasn't yeah,
2: it yeah i mean e- yeah, everything was going right and political stability and democracies were maturing and you know production was happening and all these all these good things and then suddenly the bottom fell out 2008-9 I started asking all these questions, but hang on a second. This is a major crisis. How do we get this wrong? You know, and and the people I was I was working with at the time, you know, the senior economists were kind of like, no, but it's a once in a lifetime event. You can't predict these things, and I couldn't quite I couldn't quite get my head around that. I just felt like surely, as an economist, you need to be getting these big events, a once in a lifetime thing should be the one function, that an, being able to predict it correctly would be the one thing that an economist should be able to do. Well, the book was written about this, called Which, The Black Swan, right? Yeah, look, they're uh, black swans uh, and then they're business cycles, and it right. happens every credit crisis. Everybody gets it wrong. So it's not even a black what happens. swan. It's not even a black swan. <laughs> that wasn't a black swan. So you go, and that's where you, I started investigating this. Um, being being curious and inquisitive, started looking for people who did predict the stuff, and, uh, you know, there's a guy by the name of Peter Schiff. He's the president of Europe Pacific Capital in America. And he made this – I mean, he was predicting this housing bubble and crisis. And in this one presentation in particular uh, for the Mortgage Bankers Association in both 2006 and seven, he laid out exactly how this credit crisis was going to be playing out, literally as the dominoes would fall. And he described it perfectly in an hour-and-a-half-long presentation to the Mortgage Bankers Association in America. And he hmm. says he was never invited back. Yeah, I mean, a year later, it all kind of unfolded exactly as he'd predicted. Um, and his analytical framework is basically the Austrian theory of the business cycle. Um, and there's a few others, you know, Jim Rogers and a whole bunch of guys. Um, and that was kind of the golden thread. And um, it all comes down to distorting interest rates away from the actual market rate of where they should be in order to balance consumption and supply and investment um, and, and the distortions that it creates and the business cycle crises it ultimately creates when central banks start to tinker with these rates. And I just also want to say it's not necessarily always central banks. You can also get big capital inflows into a small country or economy which drives interest rates lower than they should be. So right. we've had, we had a lot of that in Africa in the last in the yeah, last business cycle
0: excess of money.
2: You had this, you know, all, huge money printing in the Western countries. It creates a commodity bubble. You had the China growth spurt, and it was leading to big investment inflows into Sub-Saharan Africa, and it was actually driving interest rates low lower than that, lower than what they should have been, and so that also caught it, sort of right. created an even bigger unsustainable boom in Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Which is which is in the process of sort of. So basically,
0: up. what you're saying is if you distort the interest rate and artificially create it, well, artificially put it at some arbitrary place, that gives out the wrong signals mm-hmm. to businesses and entrepreneurs and manufacturers. Um, and so they create a product that is not really needed, but because the interest rate is so low, people borrow to buy said products. And then. Once the interest rate goes back up again it's it's a yeah,
2: mess. it's all just revealed to be to have been malinvestments mm. and unsustainable. All right, you so know? so what do you think about
1: South Africa? I mean our current interest rates are what eleven 10, 11? 10,
2: 11, I don't know.
1: I'm not uh, Yeah, that's what, sort figures. of
2: where, where prime prime interest rates are. The policy rate's lower than that, it's around seven percent.
1: Okay, so where do you um, think it should be if it was real? Um so if if we had a free market and like a real free market, well, no possible. control.
2: I don't know if it's possible to But you see it's that. it's very it's very hard to say because I mean let's think let's think about this. Um, if the central bank, let's say, retired and was dismantled tomorrow hmm. and they didn't have control over over interest rates uh-huh. anymore and the RAND supply was from now on fixed. Where it is. I think there's very definitely potential for interest rates to go significantly higher from here because it would, cause, it would cause a major economic crisis because everybody's now become used to higher prices constantly. So high inflation, weakening of the currency consistently in order to allow prices to rise 3 to 6% per year, which is the South African Reserve Bank's inflation target, um, and sort of lower interest rates, which are controlled by the central bank. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, Let's say um, this is allowed to happen and you get a sort of ideological shift at government and there's a huge focus on securing property rights in South Africa and liberalizing this economy. I think you would then start to see potentially – um, a, a, a far bigger appetite for entrepreneurs and business people and even foreign investors in order to dishoard their savings in South Africa, to put their savings to work in order to accumulate capital, to lend it to other people and all these things. So you you could potentially see interest rates coming down. Um, yeah, and, and ultimately, where it settles is very difficult to predict.
1: Yeah, sure. But where you think the country's going depends partly on those kinds of um, ideas in terms of where where we actually are versus where it's falsely set. Yeah. So yeah. So where do you think we're going currently? Yeah.
2: So I I, I think I think I think short term interest rates and where they set the way around how I think about the outlook is too low for the economy. It needs to be higher. Um and um look let just think about it like this as well. There's a global backdrop to all of this stuff. I mean, in America, in 1981. Interest rates were around seventeen or eighteen percent mm. today short term interest rates are 075 percent in America you know obviously bottomed at zero percent um, and and Western industrialized economies around the world have followed a similar trend. interest rates have been declining since one thousand nine hundred and eighty one to basically six thousand year lows today okay six so there, a history of interest mm. rates there 's a great study by um, Omer and Silla, they were these fixed income strategists and economic historians. They basically went through it was 5,000 years of, of, of economic history, documentations of credit contracts, hmm. and uh, peeled the interest rates out of those contracts. Um, and, and they plotted these interest rates on trend lines. And in 5,000 years of history, we've never had interest rates as low as they are today, ever. You know, not even in the height of the Great Depression when the economy was contracting on order of 10 or 20% per year, you know, and prices were in free fall. So you had massive deflation. Same thing in the late 1800s. Um, the industrial revolution, as I said earlier, had 10% per year declining prices, you know, so price deflation. Interest rates in the US back then was, were between five to 10%, positive interest rates. So today we have a very different monetary system, um, where, where central bank committees have essential carte blanche, complete freedom to create new money out of thin air. You've got mandates to create inflation um, and interest rates are at record lows. Um, so where I'm going with this is that's kind of the global backdrop. And if you go back 140 years or so, hmm. long-term interest rate cycles last on average around 35 years. We've had a 35-year period of declining interest rates now in the western world and that's 5,000-year lows.
1: So, so I think the risk from here point.
2: is yeah, they, they, they will be going up from here. It's a matter of when. Um, and they're probably going to be going up significantly higher from here and for decades. And so it's going to be very diffi- difficult for South African interest rates to stay down unless you see a, a significant change in course of policy away from uh, interventionist, socialist-type economic policies towards Securing private property rights, allowing entrepreneurs to function, inviting capital into this country, that's going to be the issue. So, yeah, buy Bitcoin, not gold. Bitcoin. It's very important. <laughs> not gold, actually. Look, I think money that goes into Bitcoin at this time um, would would need to be money that people can afford to lose. Um, but certainly, I think there's uh, the technology around the stuff, super exciting. I still like Gold is a currency. I mean, it's been tested for 6,000 years and it always comes out on top. So, (laughs) awesome.
0: Chris, thank you very much. All right. So, start paying off that bond now. Otherwise, you're screwed. That's what you get from uh, all of that. Once the interest rate goes up, stop borrowing, of course. That makes sense because then the interest rate won't affect you, your debt. And uh, live within your means. And um, what else? Buy Bitcoin. Yes. There you go. is that all the and and
1: don't drink and drive?
2: Well, <laughs> you can, yeah. All right, um, stop bashing the state, Ramon eh? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Start bashing or stop
0: bashing.
1: <laughs> right, Chris. Thank you very much. Thanks for for coming on. I I think uh, it's like a primer almost because there's a there's a lot more that can be discussed. So, so do you understand the economics a bit more now? Well, a little bit, a little bit. There's, as I say, I think it's uh, such a giant subject and topic, and it's, it's it's complex. Do you still think it's a pseudoscience, Ramon?
0: No. Chris and I used to talk about it's this a like six years ago. It's yeah. a social That's science. It's not a good thing at this well, stage. It depends how you look at it. No, but I used to know like all the stuff, and I haven't read economics in about five years, and I feel a bit stupid, but um, Chris is here to save us. And thank you so much for your time. Appreciated, and uh, yeah, maybe we'll get you on every few months and tell us what what we need to do. No, you don't have a financial advisor. You can just tell us uh, <laughs> a bit more about the ideas. And uh, cool. Thanks. And, 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 and what's tanking and how it's tanking? Right.
1: <laughs> right. Cool. Um, we can find you on Twitter.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: Uh, what's your What's your handle?
2: It's at Chris Damn it, the L is what I forgot. Chris L Becker. B-C-K-E-R. Awesome.
1: Great. Um, yeah. So people can hit you up there. Ramon, final words. Bye, gold. Enjoy, uh, enjoy your trip. I know you're going away. Have a good time. I'll be like back by the time this releases. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thank you. Well, have a good one. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. You can find us as always on Facebook, both our page and the group. On Twitter, at Renegade underscore report. Roman Cabernet, that's at Roman Cabernet. uh, At Jonathan underscore wit. And cheers, we'll catch you next time.
2: Cliffcentral.com